We are, as I said before, in this series called The Upside Down Kingdom. And we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we started this just a few weeks ago. We're delving into this. And we've been uh, breaking these beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes down piece by piece. uh, And looking what God has to say and how we are to live as citizens of this heavenly kingdom that he has for us. So we've been breaking it down piece by piece, and today we have entered into the beatitude of blessed are those who who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's very short, succinct beatitude, but it's filled and jam-packed with truth. And as I I was meditating on this passage, as we were studying it in our small groups, I started to, to reconsider my understanding of mercy. Uh, And even as a pastor, you're researching for sermons and trying to find a lot of stories on mercy. Surprisingly, there aren't a lot. And I think it's because we don't do well with mercy. I mean, we want mercy for ourselves, but rarely do we like giving it to other people. We'd rather make them pay. We'd like to see them squirm. We want them to know how much they've hurt us or gone through something. But yet God is a God of mercy. And it is something that we all desperately long for, want, and need. But how are we to be merciful? I mean, we want God's mercy on us, and sometimes we think that we deserve God's mercy, but you can't deserve mercy. That's the point. Mercy is withholding something you do deserve, as she was, as uh, Andrea was saying earlier. But as I started looking at this passage, I realized that that definition, while succinct and true, is, is only a part of the greater picture of mercy that we see within Scripture. And as I was looking and thinking of this passage, I came across this story that just blew me away in, in understanding mercy. It was a few days before world, uh, or during World War II, before Christmas, in 1943, when a 21-year-old pilot of a B-17 bomber, he was a West Virginia boy named Charles Brown, they called him Charlie Brown, and he was flying on his first and most unforgettable mission. He had just bombed um, some of Germany, and on his way back, they had been decimated by German fighter planes and managed to stay up in the air. And he kept praying and saying, God, just get me, get us back to England. But they were sitting ducks. They were flying low. Um, There wasn't much left on the plane. Some of the crew had been injured, shot dead. Matter of fact, the tail gunner had been shot and his lifeless body hung over the tail gun and his blood had frozen solid over all of the, 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 uh, the tail of the gun. And so Charlie is floating along figuring out how he's going to get home as he's flying this plane that's just completely crippled when he sees something out of the corner of his eye that would totally bring fear in anyone. And it was a German fighter. The German fighter comes up just as he can see it, and he's thinking, I'm going to die right now. But surprisingly, that German fighter doesn't move. That German fighter just stays right beside him and keeps flying with him to his astonishment. Matter of fact, that German fighter stays right on his wing until he gets over to the North Sea, and then the German fighter looks at him, salutes, and then peels away. Now, this is, this is an incredible story, because this is a German fighter who knew that this was an Allied plane. This is a German plane, and he knew that he, he, this was his enemy, um, and he, he, he knew that he should kill them, but he didn't. And, and uh, Charlie, as he made his way back to the North Sea, he got into England, he, the plane had landed, he sat there, he put his hand over the Bible that was in his jacket and just said, thought to himself, I'm home, what just happened? How did I, why did that guy not kill us? 
And he, he kept that thought in his mind, and he went on to do many other missions and, and uh, went on to serve the government for the Secretary of State, and then he ended up retiring. And, but in his retirement, he started being woken up by nightmares, as it happens with so many different veterans. He was woken up in the middle of the night, and this time he sees the German fighter in his, in his mind, in his dream, and the, the pilot pulls back and starts firing and has no pity, no mercy. And as he starts to crash, he wakes up right before it. And he's, he, he becomes just consumed with this thought, I have to find out why this guy had mercy on me. I mean, it's a great story of mercy, is it not? This German fighter who is, who is an enemy of this ally has mercy on him and peels away at the last minute. And, and I look at that story and I think about it. And I think about how God had mercy on us. I mean, we were guilty in the sight of God. We deserve our punishment. We deserve to be taken out. But God, in his mercy, for sometimes reasons we don't understand, is merciful to us and lets us live. And today we're going to look not only at God's mercy, but why and how we can be merciful to other people. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask God's blessing on our message time. Our Father and our God, we know that you are a merciful God. That you are a gracious and forgiving God. And Lord, so often we forget our true condition before you, that we are tattered, we are broken and we are crippled and we deserve the punishment that you would, you would give according to your justice. But Lord, you were merciful. Your son came alongside us, saw us in our condition, and rather than condemning, helped us to freedom and safety through you. We ask your blessing on our message time today. Lord, please bring to our memory any person that we need to be merciful to. Help us to have a heart like you do rather than expressing words of condemnation and alienation. But Lord, may we instead give hope and truth and light and forgiveness and above all, mercy and grace. We ask your blessing on our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be flipping back between Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 10. So I would encourage you to get that ready, and I I want us to really, again, jump into this. And we've been breaking this down for the past few weeks. I'm not going to repeat all of the background again for you, but we have been going through this this passage verse by verse. And today, as I mentioned before, we've landed on verse 7, which are, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as I've been thinking about this passage and how can we understand it, how can we apply it to our life, the first thing that we need to do is begin with God. We need to begin with God because God is merciful. So we need to make sure that we are examining his exhortation to mercy. That's the first point that I'd like you to write down. We need to be examining his exhortation. We need to go back to the word of God and see how God is merciful to us. If we are to understand and apply this beatitude and all of the ramifications that are there in it, then we need to make sure that we are learning who God is and how he is merciful to us and then how he desires us to be merciful to other people. So often, we are good at taking things from God and expecting mercy from Him, but we're not merciful to other people. It's like the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18 that many of our small groups started this, uh, looked at this past week of this man who had uh, been given this huge, massive loan that he ends up defaulting on to his master. And, and the guy's getting ready to throw him in prison to sell his entire family in order to help repay the debt. The guy begs for mercy, 
the, the master gives him mercy. This guy leaves the presence of the master, and he goes out and shakes down one of his, his, his friends who owed him money, and it wasn't even that much, much money. And in his anger, he throw this guy in prison. And he's, the people that saw this were so frustrated that they go back to the master and they say, this is what this guy did, even after you let him off. So he brings him back in and he goes, you didn't show mercy like I showed you mercy? I'm going to throw you in. It's, it's understanding that God is merciful to us and he's forgiven us innumerable transgressions. And yet, we need to be able to be merciful to others in forgiving them. But there's a lot more involved in that. But we need to go to the word of God and examine God's exhortation to mercy. And if we're to understand this mercy, then it requires us recognizing this, first of all. Mercy is rooted in the person of God. Mercy is rooted in the person of God. I'd like to look at Exodus chapter 34 for you for the moment. Verse 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious... Get that, a God merciful and gracious in his nature. He is by his attributes and his activity merciful in who he is, desiring to show mercy and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Or the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As I think about that, how his, his mercies are new every morning, I can't but help think of that movie uh, a long time ago, Groundhog Day. Remember that movie? He kept repeating the same day over and over and over, and he couldn't seem to get out of it. But I look at it, and he's got this new, fresh day, but it's the same day over and over and over again. And I thought about that. I'm like, you know, God's mercies are every day, always, 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 always. I mean, not that we're doomed to repeat the same day, not like that, but every day his mercies are there for us. They're not, they're not suddenly cut off from us. They're there every single day. God's mercies are new every day. Isn't that make you happy? Doesn't that give you some joy to know that? I mean, sometimes we think we've gone beyond the grace of God. The problem is, is our understanding of grace is wrong. Grace continually is God giving to us what we didn't deserve. That's why it's grace. You can't earn grace. It's a gift. God's mercies are new every morning to be renewed again and again. Perhaps the greatest revelation of God's great mercy was displayed at his passion. Displayed at his passion. God is not only merciful, because we can't really truly understand the mercy of God without understanding his wrath and his justice. And he can't stop being one or the other. And these attributes are not in conflict with one another. See, it was at the cross of Christ, however, that we can see God's wrath and mercy being displayed at the same time in its wrathful fury. Allow me to explain. See, another of God's attributes is that he is holy. And, and the cross is about holiness. How can God show an unholy people, us, to be reconciled to him who is completely holy in himself? How can a holy God then have a relationship with an unholy people? See, God has to judge us for our sin. 
He can't just overlook it. He has, has to give us justice. In the temporal, the eternal, or both, we are guaranteed to experience God's justice. There's no grace period. There's no getting out of it. There's no ducking it. There's no excusing it. We will experience the penalty for all of the sins that we have ever done and have to pay the awful price for them, physical and spiritual death. Eternal separation from God, whereby we will experience the agonies of our punishment nonstop for all eternity. That sounds pretty awful to me. I hope it sounds awful to you. What God did, though, through his, was send his son in the likeness of sinful man, except that he didn't have, nor did he ever sin. See, in his son, we see God substituting himself for our sake. He, as the scriptures say, becomes sin itself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. See, we see Jesus Christ receiving the wrath of God that was to be upon us. He became vile and grotesque. He became the rebel, the criminal, all of our evil that we have done. And while on the cross, he experienced the full fury of the wrath of God. He is punished for all the sins that we have done there on the cross, God's wrath and justice are fully meted out in all of its overwhelming power. He served the sentence that I deserved. That is the mercy of God. The sinless one serving the sentence of the sinner. But God has a purpose in doing this, in his mercy, and that is that we might not perish but come to repentance. As the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse nine, or 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, he gives time for repentance. And now we can receive forgiveness and be exonerated by trusting in his finished work on the cross. Now, this is what Tim Challies, some of you might know who he is, others might not. He's a very popular evangelical Christian blogger. And he said this about the cross and how justice and wrath came, uh, justice, wrath, and mercy came together at the cross. He says, this is the wonder of the cross. That here we see the fullest measure of wrath and the fullest measure of mercy at the same time in the same place and all because of the same Savior. At the cross we see wrath and mercy meet. He goes on, Christian, God's history with you is a history of mercy and patience and love. Do you see God's patience with you? You may think back to the days before you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And remember sins you committed, sins that justly put you under the wrath of God, sins that shame you now, and you can see that he was patient. Has God been patient with you? Do you see God's patience in your life? He could have destroyed you, but he didn't. He was merciful. Not wishing that you should perish, but waiting for you to repent. He did not owe you this mercy of patience, yet he extended it to you. And you did repent, and you did receive his forgiveness for that sin. And the punishment of that sin was fully paid by Jesus Christ. Praise God for this patient mercy. The unbeliever, too, has experienced God's patient patient mercy. He is experiencing it right now. He goes, how do I know? Because he's still alive. He's still alive. He still has opportunity to repent and turn to God. There's still that moment that life is not over. That he still draws breath. There is that opportunity to turn now. I mean, death is the great 
liquidator and, and, and it ends it all. There's no more opportunity past that. Because he's still alive. Because God has not yet acted in final judgment toward him. What will happen when God's mercy comes to an end and all that is left in judgment and wrath? Here is our call to evangelism. To take the good news of the gospel of grace to people who day after day continue to presume upon God's mercy. God does not wish for any to to perish to face his wrathful justice. We have that opportunity now to share. God has been patient and merciful to us by giving us His Son to be our substitute, to take the wrath of God upon Himself, what you and I deserved. And we have a tendency to make our sins seem small, but they're very large. When we try to pass off things as not sin, then we are nullifying and saying that the cross was, meant nothing. But it was everything. That's where it all is shown in all of its wrath. God's wrath and our our, our sin is seen in all of its hideousness and ugliness. But we have a tendency to make it so much better. I mean, we make it sound so sweet and so great. But it's not. It's awful. We see God's mercy displayed at His passion. God was rich in mercy to us, and now we know that we are to be rich and merciful to others. See, that's the thing about this. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. See, now God desires that this mercy be exercised by His people. Exercised by His people. God expects us to be merciful. After all, we are recipients of His mercy, so we should offer this mercy to others. Now, perhaps one of the most startling yet reassuring passages in Scripture is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. It's one of the greatest stories. If you've, you've ever been caught in sin in your life, you know just how much hope that gives you, just reading that passage. See, we don't know much about this woman. We don't know whether she was sleeping with another woman's husband or whether she was the one married or whether they were both married or what. But whatever the case, she was guilty. What we do know is that she was caught in the act, guilty and fully deserving of punishment. She is wrought before Jesus, undoubtedly embarrassed, perhaps partially clothed, dragged out of her illicit affair into the streets for all to see. She was no fool. She knew the punishment for such a crime was death. She deserved it. She deserved the shame, the guilt, and the judgment according to Scripture, which was stoning. The anxiety, undoubtedly, the fear crept over her as people are now shouting around her. Everyone's seeing and now knowing what had occurred. She can't hide. She can't get away. There was no excuse. The hypocritical leaders came to Jesus waiting for his response. And it was a terrible trick in the midst of a moral tragedy. They quote to him the law regarding the sin of which she was guilty, reminding the very author of that law, which they did not know was in their presence, what he wrote. Jesus bends down to ride on the ground as the jealous jury waited for the verdict from the divine judge. He stands up to speak, offering words that no one expected to hear. He says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The words echoed through the hearts of the malicious mob, words that rang hollow in hypocritical hearts, but from the Savior the words came to life in a way that no one had ever heard before. The intent of the law from the Lord of life found its mark. Arrested by their own accusations, these men found themselves guilty. 
She was guilty, yes. But so were they. See, their own sins had gone uncovered for so long, but Jesus' words fell softly to seared souls living in silent rebellion. But the words spoken in the goodness and mercy of Christ led these men to repentance. And as Jesus' words penetrated their souls, still hanging in the air in the presence of the holy, he knelt back down to the ground and continued writing. Slowly, rocks originally intended to be used as weapons could be heard falling on soft earth. At first one or two, then three, four, and five. What started as a raindrop of surrender became a torrent of mercy and grace before quietly fading into holy silence as each accuser left. By herself now, without the crowd to condemn or accuse, likely still shocked and shaking as the adrenaline was still running. Shaken by the scandal created by her sin and the death sentence that just passed by, she stood by herself before the Savior. Jesus stood up and said to her, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Her response is short and filled with disbelief and astonishment, her voice probably quivering. No one, Lord. Jesus responded, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. See, that story is played out each day in many of our lives. How many of us have been caught in acts of moral compromise captured by our sin? There is not one person who is in this room right now who has not felt guilty in the sight of God, sentenced by our own choices of disobedience. But thank God there's mercy. Don't you thank God for mercy and grace, forgiveness, that God has not treated us according to what our sins deserved? He continually offers himself to us as the condemned Christ on our behalf. He offers himself to pay for our sin, and he showers us with mercy and grace. See, that I know that God is merciful to us and he expects us to be merciful to others. But what does this look like when we help others and are merciful to them? It's one thing to have someone sin against me and me be merciful to them. It's another thing to just find someone and be merciful to them. See, as we were reading this this past week, I came upon the story, perhaps no greater story of mercy is there in the scriptures than that of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And I would encourage you to turn there if you haven't already. I'd like us to look at that passage and break it down to look at this mercy that God is illustrating for us. Because I have to confess that this is not a story after I've read this several times over the years that I never understood the mercy that was involved. I I knew goodness, I knew grace, I knew helping a neighbor, loving your neighbor, but mercy was not something that I thought of when I, when I looked at it. And I want us to be delving into this great example of mercy. Delving into this great example of mercy. Now, it's the story of a man robbed, hurt, and bleeding on the side of the road. In need of help and medical attention, but no one stops. They all pass by. Jesus tells us this story and says that the first man to stop, pass by was a Levite. And uh, he was one who, or, or the first man, excuse me, to pass by was a priest whom you would expect would stop to help, but he didn't. The second man to pass by was a Levite, another one whom you would expect to stop and help, but he didn't. Last of all, the Samaritan stopped by. The one whom Jews who were listening to Jesus speak would not expect to stop and help. He is the one who helped. And when Jesus ends the story, he asks a question. And I love this question. In verse 36, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
And the man responded with this. In verse 37, he says, The one who showed him mercy. Now that struck me. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, what I want us to do here is to see how this great example of mercy illustrates for us how we are to show mercy on other people. First of all, you see that this man stops by, this Samaritan man. He stops by and he, he sees this man in need. And he sees that this man has a need. Now, that's the first step is this. It seems trivial, but it's true. You, if we're going to help people in need, we need to be identifying what that need is. Identifying the need. That's what the first step that we are required to do. Secondly, we see that he has compassion for him. Now, in Greek, the word is splunkna, which means from the gut he felt, and he then embraced that need as his own. So he identified the need, and he says, I'm going to embrace that need, I'm going to empathize, and I'm going to feel with this individual, and I'm going to embrace that need, and then I'm going to take that need upon myself and alleviate that need. That's mercy. Identifying the need, then embracing the need, and then alleviating the need. And that's what Jesus says uh, when he says, which one did right? And he said, the one who had mercy. That's what mercy is. It's helping people that are in need or in distress. It's not just withholding what they deserve, but it's coming alongside. I mean, it is that, but it's also more. It's coming alongside, seeing people in their distress, and helping them. But like you, and I bet many of you are a lot like me, I have a lot of reasons why I don't help alleviate the need. We're masters of excuses, are we not? So if we're going to really help people, then we need to be disposing of our excuses to mercy. Now, I've come up with a list for us that is no, by no means exhaustive, but it helps us understand how we can... Some of these excuses, I think, are some of the most popular excuses that we have that we, so we don't help people in need. Here's the first one that we're going to be disposing of. We need, um, and these excuses come from a few different things. The first of this, they're past experiences. Perhaps we've been taken advantage of in our past. Perhaps we've seen other people in need, and, and we found out later that they were cons or they took advantage of us. So we say, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to be taken advantage of that way. Our heart is cold. So perhaps it's past experiences. Secondly, it could be just present circumstances. Now, we don't know where the other two guys that passed by were headed. Maybe they were late for church. I mean, they could have been. How many of us have seen somebody in need when we're late for something? We're like, oh, I could do that, but just not right now. I'm late. I've done that. And I've used it as an excuse. Trying to make something godly. Say, I'm going to do the godly thing. Well, the godly thing was right there. So we have this way of hiding things under spiritual personas of hypocrisy. We have to be very, very careful of how we do what we do. I mean, that was the biggest thing with the, the religious leaders. Even when they brought the woman caught in the act of adultery, they looked really pious, didn't they not? They're quoting the law. The law demands this! But really, they were hiding their own desire for justification and to bring Jesus down. And that was a sinful thing that they were hiding under a godly guise. So we have to be very, very careful with what we do. Because we can do this. We can become masters of this. 
So we must make sure that we're not hiding behind past experiences or present circumstances. And even then, we might think, I can't afford to do this. I don't have room. Someone else can do this. I mean, we don't know anything about this guy, this good Samaritan that comes by. We don't know if he could afford it. Maybe he couldn't. We know that he, he put this guy up in the... First, he bandages his wounds, and then he puts him up in the end at his own expense. We don't know if he could afford it. We have no, we have no idea. We just know that this is what he did. This is what he did. He saw someone in distress and in need. He identified it. He embraced it. And then he alleviated it. Here's another one. A third excuse is risk of possible contamination. Possible contamination. And this is what I mean by that. We might think they're going to affect me spiritually in some way. They're going to bring me down. They're dirty. They're a sinner. They've done this. They're just, we're just going to leave them in their sin. We think that they're going to bring us down spiritually. Now, we do have to be careful because bad company corrupts good morals, as Paul says. And if we find someone's behavior affecting our own, then we need to pull back. But in this instance, this is just a one time only. He's coming in helping. And we have this fear of possible contamination or the, what's it going to cost us? I'm going to maybe endanger my family. What, what are all these things that fly through our mind? But I think we think of possible contamination. Now, fourthly, this is a simple one. We might just might be racially prejudiced. You think you're not prejudiced? You are. Everyone is in one way, shape, or form. I don't care. We're, we're all prejudiced in different ways. It's just best to admit it and get on and work through that. But see, that was part of the moral of the story in Luke chapter 10. See, that's why this guy, if you look in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus says, which one did right? And, and this guy can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. See, there was a racial element. When Jesus brought that out to them, it was a completely racist thing. They hated Samaritans. They hated him completely. These were the half-breeds. These are the guys that didn't have the whole law. These were the moral compromisers. These were the guys that were just outside. I mean, they hated him so much, they wouldn't even walk in their neighborhood. They would drive around. Have you ever had someone's neighborhood of a different ethnicity that you don't drive through? I bet you have. I bet you have. Do you, you know, the Bible talks a lot about racism. Do you know that? Book of Jonah, great example. We've talked about this before. Why wouldn't Jonah go? Because they were Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He hated them. Because they had done so much injustice to his people. That's when God says, go to the Ninevites. He's like, I can't do it. I want them to pay, not learn how to pray. I don't want them to have salvation. I want them to have condemnation. See, God calls us to reach out. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that there is no more Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. We're all brought in. Now, that doesn't mean that we lose our skin color and that we, we're just going to be like we're all happy family. We're going to have to work through those things because those are realities that we deal with. But if we're to truly be the people of God, we need to make an effort to do that. The problem is we're always waiting for someone else of a different ethnicity to take the first step. We have to take the first step. Step out. Ask questions. Get to know. Learn. Be humble. I mean, it's true that one of the most racist places on Sunday morning is the church. God forgive us. And I, my hope and prayer is that God makes us into a multiracial place where we are a reflection of heaven. And it takes all of us dealing with these prejudices. 
And we think we can't help, well, they're of a different race. Someone else of that race will help them. That's nuts and wrong and sinful. And I know that we have people in our midst, and, I, and we've all struggled with it. You gotta, we all have to deal with it. We all have to deal with that racism. And it comes out in many different ways. But that's not all. The fifth excuse we have comes from just poor theology. Poor theology, or an incomplete theology. What we mean by that is this. We have a tendency to see someone in the midst of their sin, and we think that they want to be there. And they, they have made their choice, and they don't want to get out of it. And we can't help them because they, they want to be in that situation. And they're just continually in sin, and we're just going to leave them to it. Now, there are certain times that God does leave a person to suffer for the consequences for their action. I'm not going to deny that. And this is why it takes discernment. But more often than not, you're, we're just using that as an excuse to not do what God wants us to do. That's an incomplete theology because God is saying right here, this is crossing racial boundaries. This is going into a very difficult situation at personal cost to oneself. We have a tendency to keep ourselves in just safety and security in our own little world that people, you know, they can't come in. But God's saying, no, open yourself up. Take that risk. And it is a risk. But God wants us to do that if we're to be true people of the gospel. Ready to show some mercy now or are you pretty freaked out? I'm a little freaked out, and I'm preaching. Because I'm preaching to myself, too. See, if we're, to, if we're to really show this mercy, we must run to God that we might be finding the courage to engage confidently. Finding the courage to engage confidently. This takes courage to do. To show this type of mercy is not easy. It's, for some, it's more easy. But for many of us, it's quite hard. And I would like to give you some hints that help me show mercy. And I'm not the best at it. I'm learning. I'm in process. But if we are to find this courage, then it requires us, first of all, remembering frequently what God has done. We're not going to show mercy to others if we think that we don't deserve mercy ourselves. When we are reminded that God was merciful to us, when we are reminded of where we have come from, then it encourages us and reminds us that we have to be merciful to others. Secondly, if we are to engage, we also must make sure that we are forgiving others sincerely. Forgiving others sincerely. Now, this is something that we all struggle with. I was at a wedding yesterday in Wisconsin uh, for a young man who's a former student of mine, Romanian guy. He married this great Hungarian girl. And uh, I'm listening to the families, and I meet his sister. I haven't seen him in many years. She'd been in my youth group, and and I was talking to her. She lives in D.C. now. And as we're talking, I knew she had gotten married to a... Uh, she had dated a guy that her parents didn't like. And so she ended up continuing to date him. And then they got married. And the parents didn't show up at the wedding. And now they have a baby. And the parents won't even look and touch this baby. It's been four years. Now this baby is there, this grandbaby. And she even went to the house to show them this baby. And they said, no, no, get away. We don't want to see you ever again. And yet these people are in church every Sunday. I'm like, how can you, in good conscience, call yourself a believer, and yet you say you receive the forgiveness of God, yet you can't forgive a child for something that you disagreed with? See, once that marriage happens, it happens. It's a done deal. You can't, you can't pull it out now. Now the best thing to do is love that grandchild. Who are you punishing by not forgiving? You're punishing yourself. Not them. See, many of us are, are saying that, oh, you don't know what they've done. That's a point of forgiveness. 
It's not saying that they're worthy of it. They're not. No one is. That's the point. Not, we're not worthy of forgiveness in the sight of God. But yet we, we, have this two different, we have two different criteria. We have forgivable things and then unforgivable things. And when a person crosses that line, we say they're no longer forgivable. Well, let me tell you, we crossed that line with God a long time ago. And yet he forgave because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's the, the thing about the cross, the great mystery. is how great that sacrifice was that when he saw us in our disobedience, he loved us and was merciful upon us. So we must make sure that we are forgiving one another. As the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, his people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, feeling for other people, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. None of us are very good at patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 18, 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The purpose is this, is that if we are to receive God's mercy, or put it better this way, since we have received God's mercy, a byproduct of that is us, will be, we will be merciful to other people. See, if, if we really receive God's mercy, we're going to be merciful to other people. If we're not merciful to other people, then chances are we really haven't received God's mercy. It's like forgiving one another. You know, forgiveness has been labeled as a bridge. When you for, fail to forgive other people, you burn that bridge, but you forget that that's a bridge you yourself must cross to get to God. When you burn that bridge, you can't cross it any longer. If you're going to forgive other people, then you can't burn it. Because you have to receive forgiveness as well from God. Forgiving one another sincerely. Thirdly, we need to make sure that we are admitting our fears honestly. Don't put up a front. Don't try to pretend. God knows. Don't try to make yourself holier than you are, more spiritual than you are. Be honest about your fears, your frustrations, and your pains when you're dealing with other people and you're having a hard time forgiving. Tell God that. He can handle it. And chances are, when you're admitting your fears, God will start giving you the insight on what to change and how he wants to change you as he's doing, as you're doing so. Fourthly, while admitting your fears, make sure that you're asking God to see needs clearly. We can't help everyone. We can't. But we can help someone. And usually God has us help someone. We need to be discerning, and he will give us direction, and he will help us to see those who need help. He might not tell you right away. Instead, he might make you, let you make that choice yourself. He might put you into situations where the need just becomes apparent. Ask him, and he will direct you. Now, fifthly, it requires stepping out in faith boldly. Stepping out in faith boldly. If we're to really show merciful, be merciful to other people, we're just going to have to take a step of faith. Ask God for the eyes of faith to see who needs help, and then step forward boldly to help meet that need. Be bold in helping others, not caring what others may think. And next, we can see from the Good Samaritan that helping people is costly. And that may mean giving sacrificially. Giving sacrificially our time, our treasures. It might put us in an inconvenient place for a period of time, but it means giving sacrificially. As the proverb says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 through 28, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. If you have the opportunity to do good, then do it. 
give sacrificially if necessary, and then be prepared for something that happens because there is a reward that comes. For it will come, and then we will be able to reap satisfaction joyously. Reaping satisfaction joyously. You know, I told you this story at the beginning of Charles Brown, Charlie Brown, in this plane. What I didn't tell you is about the other pilot. See, the other pilot was a man by the name of Franz Stigler. And it's interesting, he wasn't there to have a mission of mercy. This German pilot was on a mission, and it was for vengeance. See, he wanted valor, and he wanted revenge. He was not just a pilot, but an ace, and one more kill would get him the Knight's Cross, the highest reward for valor in Germany. And he also wanted revenge because his older brother, August, was a pilot who had been killed early in the war. He was on the ground when he heard the roar of a B, that B-17 go over and saw it just pass over him as if it were about to land. He saw it go over some trees, so he jumped into his fighter, and he went into the air, took off as fast as he could. He got into the air, he got right behind that B-17, and he decided to attack it from behind. But as he got closer, he noticed that the guns weren't firing, the tail gunner wasn't firing. So he inched closer, and he sees the tail gunner laid dead over the gun. He sees his white collar of his jacket just soaked in blood. And he pulls up alongside the plane, and he notices that the thing's barely in the air. And it's, it's, getting re- it's just not much keeping it up. And as he, he sees that lifeless body draped over the gun and the blood around the collar, he looked closely at the plane that had been decimated and was barely hanging on. And he could see through the windows. He could see the crew attending to other wounded soldiers. He made his way up the side of the plane to the cockpit where he could see the eyes of the pilot looking at him in complete shock and horror. What to do? He pressed his hand to the rosary in his jacket and recalled his training and the words from his commanding officer who said this, You follow the rules of war for you, not your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. Stigler had once been trained to be a priest, so he eased his finger off the trigger. They were helpless, and this would be murder. It was at that moment Stigler changed his mission. Instead of bringing them down, he would keep them up. He began flying in formation with the B-17 as if it were a German B-17 so that the anti-aircraft guns on the ground wouldn't shoot him down. And he see, escorted the bomber to the North Sea. He took one last look at the pilot, saluted, peeled his fighter away, and returned to Germany, saying to himself, Good luck, you're in God's hands now. As the years passed, Brown, Charlie Brown was so touched he made it his mission to track down this German pilot, and he placed an ad in a German um, newsletter for former Luftwaffe pilots retelling the story, asking if anyone knew the pilot. And finally, he received a reply, a letter that read this, Dear Charles, all these years I wondered what happened to the B-17. Did she make it or not? It was Stigler. He had moved to Vancouver, British Columbia in 1953, and he ended up becoming a prosperous businessman. Retired, he told Brown that he would be in Florida come summer and he would like to get together to talk about their encounter. The two decided to meet in Florida at a hotel lobby. They were jovial at first, older, obviously, looking like retired businessmen, but when someone asked Stigler what he thought of Brown, he had to fight back tears and said, I love you, Charlie. How could he say that about a man he barely knew? Stigler was virtually exiled by his countrymen after the war. Out of the 28,000 pilots, only 1,200 survived for Germany. Everything had been taken from Stigler, and Brown was the only thing that came out of the war that was good for Franz. 
It was the one thing he could be proud of. See, Brown had written Stigler a letter of thanks, but it wasn't enough. So he put together a reunion of all of the surviving crew members and their families. With Stigler as the guest of honor, at the reunion, he had a video play with all of those who now lived because of Stigler's one act of mercy. Children, grandchildren, relatives. Tears were flowing as they all... uh, thought of his sacrifice and what he had done in that one act of mercy. Both men died in 2008. And after they died, families started going through their stuff when they found a book that Franz had given to Brown about planes. Inside the book was written this note by Stigler. He said, in 1940, I lost my brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction plane that was so badly damaged it was a wonder that she was still flying the par- pilot charlie brown is for me as precious as my brother was thanks charlie your brother franz see these families not only did these ties two get together and have reunions but their families became very very close they would vacation together they, they would go on fishing trips stigler's one act of mercy gave life to dozens if not hundreds of people by withholding what this plane deserved He ended up giving life to not only them, but generations to come after. Christ's sacrifice for us gave life not to dozens or hundreds, but millions. For all who come to him in repentance and faith, he has mercy on us and then expects us to be merciful to others. Are you merciful? Have you experienced the mercy of God? Have you placed your faith in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ? He's merciful to you, not willing, not wishing that all, any should perish, but they'll all come to him and have eternal life. Scripture says that we can be saved and exp- from the wrath of God by placing our, son, our faith in his Son who enabled the mercy of God to be made unto us. We can be saved and have that forgiveness of sins and that mercy if we call on him in faith, repenting of our sins and embracing him receiving that mercy he has offered to us, and then God expects us then to be merciful to others so that they might have life in him. Amen? Amen. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, as we come before you and we think of Charlie Brown and Stigler, what an amazing message of mercy. One man withholding what was due this plane, and giving them life. And Lord, how much that one act ended up being life for so many. Lord, we know that many of us have been flying on missions of disobedience in our life. We deserve the price and deserve to make the payment for our sins, but we can't make that payment. It's death, internal separation from you, and Lord, we know that you would be just in condemning us all. But we thank you for the gift of your Son. Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to give us life, to come alongside us, to help us in our distress, so that we might have new life in you. Lord, help us to give this mercy to others. Help us to be merciful to those that we struggle with in and out, whether they're in our workplaces, whether they are colleagues or classmates, whether they are family or friends, whether it's someone we meet at the store or on the street, Lord, help us to be merciful. And may Christ's love be seen within each one of us. Lord, help us to be discerning in how and when we are to be merciful 
Lord, we don't want to excuse disobedience. We do want justice and we want to do things right. But yet we are also called to be merciful. And within you, we find the perfect balance of mercy and justice. Help us to follow your example. Help us to see and know what we are to do as we go our separate ways this week, as we step into our hallways or we step into our houses. Whether we're dealing with our, our friends or we're dealing with those who are our enemies, may we seek to exhibit your justice to this lost world that they might see you and see this true love and action for the glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.